Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to give worship and praise, to give thanks and to bring our petitions before you. You are Lord of all creation and are worthy of praise and honor and glory. And by your wonderful grace, we have mercy through the obedience, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to complete the works that you have ordained for us. And we humbly ask for more grace and more faith and more strength in order to please you. Scripture tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, that we may proclaim the excellency of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have encouraged and challenged us that once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. May we then as sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. And knowing that one day we will stand before you, may we all be more the sure and diligent to confirm our calling and election. For if we practice these things, you promise these qualities will never fail. For in this way we will be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With all that, we just glorify you and thank you For this is a grace, not of anything that we've earned, but something out of your mercy you have granted to us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're continuing in our study in Genesis on the faithfulness of God. Today we're going to talk about sibling rivalry. You may want to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 25-27. We have found that God has been displaying His character through the world He has created and in His interaction with the human race. In these latter chapters of Genesis, the focus is on four great people. We've seen Abraham, we're in Isaac, we're moving towards Jacob, and then Joseph. We have learned how God has been working through Abraham and his family to accomplish his purpose of sending a Savior to redeem the human race from the curse of sin and death that was promised first in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the rebellion and the fall. The narrative of the story has been moving from the call of Abraham to the creation of the nation of Israel that will lead to that chosen seed, Jesus. Keith Krell in his commentary writes that the focus of Genesis is on God's choice and care of his chosen people, Israel. Last week we discussed how Genesis demonstrated the providence of God in his creation and lives of the people. We had called this the doctrine of providence And I am indebted to the systematic theology of Wayne Grumman, who wrote that the doctrine of providence is that God is continually involved with all created things. And that's something we have to really understand. For many people, they believe if God created the heavens and earth, then he's kind of walked away. But no, he's he's involved in his creation, even to this very moment. And he gets involved with it in such a way that, number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining their properties in which he created them. Everything is the way it is because God says 
continue. We see that in Colossians, that that's the role of Christ still in creation. Number two is providence means that he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. We would call this creation act, and as far as the creative beings in all things, whether it's the nature, or whether it's oceans and waves, or whether it's the animal kingdom, or even human beings, as he works and directs them to accomplish his purposes, and directs them, number three, to fulfill his purpose. So all of creation, visible and invisible, works in concert with God's providence as he's moving things to the end of which he's determined. In our passage last week, we saw God providentially works to ensure that Isaac would have a wife because he needed that in order for God's promise of a Savior to come. We've learned through this wonderful love story that we can be encouraged that this same God knows our needs, our desires, and our futures, and we can rest assured that He's already and involved in our lives today. That is why we can proclaim boldly with Paul when he writes, For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And Father, we come before you and we want to thank you for that doctrine of providence. It is a difficult doctrine. It's one that sometimes can become difficult for us to understand and comprehend. But Lord, we need to rest in this doctrine. And we just pray now as we open up the next few chapters of Genesis that you would just help us to understand that doctrine as it works its way through the life of Isaac and his two sons. Father, I pray that you would just give us wisdom. May your spirit not be quenched. And Lord, again, we thank you for your word. And we open it with great privilege and responsibility to handle it in the way that you called us to. Let us respond to your work this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we continue in our study in Genesis, we must remember that Genesis is just the beginning of the story. We must remember that this is a story of the Bible. 66 books, many, many authors written over thousands of years. There's still one story. It's not 66 different stories or even a collection of stories. This is one story that is happening in the Bible. And that story is of Christ. Everything is leading to Christ. Hence why it says, before the foundations of the world. And what we see is that story is the story of redemption. So as you and I read Scripture, even when it's the Old Testament, you and I have to find out where are we in that story, because the story is not completed. For we know from Romans that it's God's will that He has determined through His providence to make us in union with Christ and to make us into the image of His Son. That's what we call glorification. We are praying for that this morning. And we look forward to that day, amen? And that's where we are heading for. Now you and I, as we're reading Genesis, we find ourselves on the other side of redemption before the cross. So when you read the Old Testament and things look different, and things look like different rules, different things of that are happening, that's because it is a little bit different. We have to understand where we are in the story. So we're here in the story early before the creation of Israel as a nation. 
God is sovereign over even seemingly random things we see as he goes in this story. He is an author, and he's writing the story as he sees fit. And as an author of a story, he is sovereign and providential over everything that happens in that story. And as a way of reminder, we saw that God is sovereign over seemingly random events. There are no coincidences or accidents. These are all things that happen. He's sovereign over the heart of the most powerful person in the land, and even over the one that's the least of all. He's sovereign over our daily lives and plans, even life and death. And as we go today, we're going to see that he's even sovereign, and providence covers even the womb, birth order, and even the, finally the promise of the Redeemer. Now, as we look at Genesis chapter 25 through 27, three big chapters here. I want to make three observations, and if you can follow with me, open your Bible, and we'll look at a few verses as we go through here. In chapter 25, we see God's faithfulness in blessing Isaac. In chapter 25, God continues to show his faithfulness in passing the blessing from Abraham to Isaac. As we come to the end of Abraham's life, we see that he is finished well. We do not see that hesitant, half-step, doubting God person that we find in the first early chapters of Abraham's life. This is a man who has tested and seen that God is good and faithful. And he passes the baton to his son Isaac, so to speak. Moses writes that God gives Abraham more children, bringing his total of sons to eight. And you remember this is one time a man who despaired of having any heir. God's faithfulness, again, is on full display here in Genesis as God's first promises to bless Abraham in chapter 12. We see later on God promised Abraham a son. Not only does he get one, but he winds up with eight. God promises Abraham that he will live a full life, which he does when he passes at 175 years of age. God promises to make Abraham a father of many nations, kings and rulers, and we see the genealogy of Ishmael and the sons of Keturah as they go on. They also become princes and kings and founders of nations. And God promises to pass on that covenant to Abraham's son, Isaac. God's faithfulness is always in display in his scripture. And though he has eight sons by this time, Abraham gives all he has to Isaac, his legal firstborn, the son of promise. He does give the remaining children gifts to help them start their own lives apart from Isaac, sending them from the land of Canaan, realizing that the land of Canaan is the land of promise. We're also told that God kept his promise to Ishmael from chapter 16 and 21 by making him the father of 12 princes that would later settle in what you and I would know as Saudi Arabia. In verse 11, God blesses Isaac as he dwells in the land, taking on the life of a nomad, just as his father did. Abraham owns one piece of land where he buries Sarah and eventually lays down his own head. But that's all he owns. Isaac himself becomes a shepherd, uh, raising different types of animals, going from city to city, place to place, well to well, water well to water well. Again, we have to remember here, as we see in verse 21, Isaac and his wife find themselves childless as Rebekah suffers just as Sarah did in not being able to bear children. And just a side note, as I look at Abraham's other children. Ishmael winds up having, what is it, 12 children. Keturah and her children wind up having more children. It just seems like it just happens with the child of promise. 
And I think that's how God continually tests Abraham and Isaac. But we see here that just like that, she also is barren. And just like Abraham, God is going to test Isaac's faith. Again, you and I must remember that God has chosen Abraham to be the one who would father the promised Savior. God chose Isaac over Ishmael to continue that promise. And here he is, Isaac, like his father, is childless. My wife is not able to bear children. Now you may recall that when this happened to Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, when they were in the same predicament, that they took things in their own hands and tried to solve the problem themselves. As you may remember, the results were less than satisfying and even brought more problems and displayed their lack of faith in God. The question, the story comes as you see the tension. What is it that Isaac would do? Is it like father, like son? But if we look at chapter 25, look at verse 21 with me. But Isaac did something different. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the great sentence is, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah and his wife conceived. Because of Isaac's faith, because he trusted in God, because he went to the one that he knew had control of all things God provided. Not just one child, but two. And this would not be any normal pregnancy either. These twins would have a rivalry that begins even in the womb. Though happy to be pregnant, her pregnancy is very difficult as verse 22 proclaims that the children struggled together within her. And the Hebrew there is that it struggled more than just uh, kicking. It seemed like there was something between the two themselves. She said, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? If this is a blessing from you, what is going on here? And she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This is no normal pregnancy. Something special is going to happen. But at this time, Rebecca is almost despairing of life. She feels that maybe they're going to just take her life with the struggle that's going on. What we see in this chapter is God has given a prophecy that will change the normal course of these twins and eventually bring disharmony to this family. The firstborn Esau, who was born first, is described as strong, a provider. He's self-sufficient and even a daddy's boy. Isaac loves the food that Esau provides. The second-born Jacob, the one who grabs at the heel, is described as being more quiet, a little bit weaker, probably taking on the role of a shepherd, as that's what it means when it says that he was a dweller of the tents and a mama's boy. Fortunately, the parents choose sides with Isaac showing favoritism towards Esau, the older, and Rebekah towards Jacob, the younger. And eventually, this leads to a major dysfunction in the family as shown by the interaction between Esau and Jacob when they're older. We read this passage a little bit earlier. Esau, hungry one day and unsuccessful in his hunt, finds himself at the tent of Jacob, who is cooking up some stew. Famished, he demanded from his brother to give him some, but Jacob, not missing an opportunity to stick one to his brother, offered to sell it to him for his birthright. Jacob takes advantage of his brother's condition. He gives no mercy and grants no grace towards his brother. There is no brotherly love and kindness going on in that family. Esau, we are told, is ruled by his hunger. 
and gives in to the man and sells his birthright. I want to stop for a moment and ask, what is a birthright and why is this important? For you and I, birthright, we know the term, we may use it, but we don't follow it in the same way as the Near East did in that time. You see, in those days, the birthright contains both material and spiritual blessing. Keith Krell, in his commentary in Genesis, writes, the son at the birthright received a double portion of the inheritance. Now, that would typically and normally come through the firstborn son. Not the firstborn daughter, but the firstborn son. They would get a double portion of the inheritance, but also they would become the head of the family and its spiritual leader when the father died. In this case, he would also inherit the covenant that God had made with Abraham. In other words, his descendant in this family would produce the Savior. Scripture tells us, though, that Esau despised his birthright. It's given us a little insight into his character. This is not a man who is a godly man, a man of faith, as Abraham and Isaac was. In other words, he didn't care about the covenant, nor the redemption plan that God had promised. Surely he had heard the story of Abraham from his father and God's wonderful plan for the family. But it seems like Esau did not care. He had other things in his mind. And that becomes clearer as he too then begins to choose wives. So we see in chapter 25, we see God's faithfulness in blessing Isaac. Chapters 26, though, God continues to show his faithfulness in spite of Isaac's fear and sin. He shows his faithfulness in spite. Look at what we mean verses 1 through 5 of chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. Let's look at those first five verses. And the Lord appeared to him, speaking of Isaac, and said, Do not go into Egypt. There was a famine during the time. He said, Do not go into Egypt. Dwell in the land in which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your offspring, I will give all of these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandment, my statutes, and my laws. Now this blessing is very important. For God repeats his promise given to Abraham, and now he gives him personally to Isaac. It's just not Abraham giving it to him. It is God speaking to him. However, a famine strikes the land. And though at first Isaac obeys God and doesn't leave, he repeats the same mistakes of his father when he lies about his relationship with Rebekah, his wife. You may recall that when Abraham left the land out of faith because of famine, went to Egypt, wound up lying about the relationship between him and Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah do the same thing. Fearing for his safety because of her great beauty, he tells everyone that Rebekah is his sister. Now, when Abraham did it, At least it was a little bit of a white lie because they were half brother and half sister. But in this case, Isaac and Rebekah are not related in that way. She's his second cousin, a little bit further removed, making most of us a little bit more comfortable with the situation as we try to think of that frame of time. But as we see here, he lies about who she is. He's afraid. He's afraid that they may kill him and take Rebekah. Could you imagine, though, how Rebecca must have felt at this time. Could you imagine 
your husband being more fearful and willing to, to keep separate for a little bit that relationship? Or how about the reaction of his twin sons, Jacob and Esau? I could almost imagine just in my own opinion of maybe that was one of the ways that was starting to bring this family into some dysfunction and separation. However, just as God protected Abraham, he protected Isaac and his family, and he actually blesses them materially. Now, for you and I, we read this story, and that sometimes it's really difficult. Why does God bless Abraham during that time? He actually came out of Egypt richer. And in the same way, Isaac goes to this place, he lies about it, and he winds up actually coming out richer materially because of his sin. For you and I, that just seems wrong, does it not? It doesn't seem fair. For you and I, God should have just brought down his judgment and justice on Isaac. But God, the author of this story, knows where he's going. And I don't know about you, but I find comfort in the fact that God blesses in spite of my sin and the times that my faith is weak and isn't as strong as it should be. Amen? We see that God does not withhold His promises. What Isaac did here was no surprise to God. God blesses him previously. It's not like all of a sudden that a God says, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. God knew and God is working all these things. For even though in spite of his fear and sin, we see that he's recognized by God in verse 24. When the Lord appeared to him of that chapter, 26, verse 24, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. He's recognized by God. And then God uses this situation in order for him to be recognized by Abimelech. In verses 28 and 29, this is the man who said, wait a second, she, she's your wife? What's going on? We, we could have taken her. God's justice would have been on us because you lied. He says, send him away. Eventually, though, in verse 28 and 29, Abimelech sees how God is blessing Isaac. And they come to him and said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, let there be a sworn pact between me and you and you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. For you are now blessed of the Lord. There is still something in Isaac's life, in spite of the fear, in spite of his lack of faith, that they saw God blessing them. But in verses 34 and 35, things begin to become darker for Isaac as Esau compounds his sin by marrying a couple of Hittite women that made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The third observation goes to chapter 27. And in chapter 27, we come to a story that's familiar to many of us. It's the one that seems that everything now turns as we see the great deception of chapter 27. Isaac here is a little bit older. He's dim in his eyes and believing that his life is near the end. Tries to secretly give the birthright blessing to Esau instead of out in the open. Typically, when someone would give that 
final family blessing, the birthright blessing. It would be done in the front of the whole family and maybe even those outside as witnesses. But Isaac, who's ruled by his appetites and his favoritism towards Esau, determines to give the blessings to Esau. In doing so, Isaac ignores the prophecy of God that was given at their birth. He forgives and ignores Esau's selling of his birthright, as obviously that would have became well known. And he winds up ignoring the marriages that caused the family grief and the character, all of these pointing to the very poor character of Esau. Now, Rebecca, who's on team Jacob, entices, commands, and convinces Jacob to deceive his father to receive the blessing. Again, showing dysfunction. This family, something has turned drastically for them. She's eavesdropping on her husband. And instead of confronting Isaac about the birth and about what God had promised, resorts to trickery to get what she wants, which is the blessing for her favorite son, Jacob. Obviously, though it's not given to us, something went wrong with this family after the wonderful love story of last week. It could have been what happened there with Isaac and Rebecca. There could have been some other things. There's things that we can look at. But something between 24 and the blessings of chapter 25, something terrible happens by the time we get to 26 and 27. This family is lying, showing favoritism. There's deception. There's a lack of love and respect. That seems to be the traits of the family. Not one that I would want to be part of. The story then unfolds of how Rebecca helps Jacob to trick his father into believing that he was Esau by dressing up in his clothes and putting goat hair all over his body. The deception is successful as Isaac blesses Jacob in verses 28 through 29 in chapter 27. Would you look at that with me? In chapter 27, verse 28 through 29, Isaac believing that Jacob is Esau gives him this blessing. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of the grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Jacob, though, receives the blessing given to Abraham. It will now be through Jacob and not Esau that the Redeemer of all creation will come. But why did Jacob agree to trick his father? I think this shows the dysfunction of the family. The fact in which somewhere faith went askewed in this family. Though the baton was passed from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac failed to pass it on successively or with great faith to his sons. And we're going to see it creates much disaster as we go on. Jacob agreed to trick his father because he was under pressure from his mother. He tricked his father because he wanted that blessing so badly. He probably desired it. He says, if it was only for a minute, and I don't know how long it was, it seems that they were born fairly quickly. That probably bothered him the whole life. It's probably why he saw Esau, who was loved by father, wanting his father to love him. That's why he tricked Esau into selling his birthright. He wanted it badly. He was willing to do whatever it took. He agreed to trick his father because he believed the end justified the means. 
He had heard the story of the prophecy of God, and he probably thought to himself, convinced himself, well, if God wants me to have it, then this is how I need to do it. The ends justify the means, right? We understand that. Finally, I believe he agreed to trick his father because he just didn't respect his father. The favoritism had come to such a point, the relationship between him and his father had gotten to the point where he did not even respect his father. And he was willing to do whatever his mother called him to do. Esau and Jacob's conflict began at birth. It carried over to the fight over the birthright and continued to the final blessing that leads to Esau's anger and hatred of his brother and his declaration that once Isaac dies, he was going to kill Jacob. Just as Cain was angry at his brother, so was Esau. Jacob, we see at the end and the beginning of the next chapter, is sent away for his protection under the guise of finding his wife. So what does this mean? What's going on with this story? See, Isaac has a different, more difficult decision than his father Abraham had. His test is a little bit stronger in different tones. Which son would receive the covenantal promise? It's not like he had just a firstborn son, then a secondborn son, and a thirdborn son. It's not that he had children by concubines and by servant ladies as Abraham did. His was, I have twins. How do we know that one wasn't supposed to be born before the other? They were struggling in the womb. Maybe something happened. That's why Jacob is grabbing at his heel, trying to pull him back. Isaac had to make a decision here. Which son would get the birthright? By which child would the promise of God continue? Abraham only had to choose Isaac, his only son by Sarah. Isaac was the son of promise. God had made that clear. Where Isaac had two sons, twins at that. Though Esau was the first to be born, God had spoken that it should go to the second. So even though his decision might have been difficult, he should have looked at God's word. He should have brought that into fact. But his faith wasn't strong enough. In reading this passage, we can recognize that both Isaac and Rebekah chose and loved their favorite sons on human terms. And see, that's the problem when we come and we make decisions based on human terms rather than on what God is doing. See, Isaac based his favoritism, his love on Esau's ability to hunt and provide the food that he loved to eat. That word love shows up in this family, in this book, in these three chapters. But every time it's used, it's about Isaac loving Esau's food. He loved wild game. Look it up. Every time it's about love, it's about the stomach. It's about this food. Rebecca based hers on Jacob being more like her. He's a tent dweller. He was quieter. He was fairer. He was more like her. This dysfunction led to sin and division in this family. Let me share with you the price of sin as we just kind of look at this family. Isaac lost all credibility as a spiritual leader in his family. From that time forward, he actually lived another 40 years after this event with the consequences of his decision. One son gone, another son angry and hateful. Rebecca, her relationship with her husband was severely damaged 
and forever she is remembered not as a great beauty and one who trusted God in the beginning, but she's remembered as a schemer and a deceiver. That's the end of Rebecca. And unfortunately, or sadly I should say, she never saw Jacob again. The day she sent him off to find a wife was the last time she ever saw him. Esau, he led a specially immoral life. We see that in Hebrews. He never received the repentance, and though later he did reconcile with Jacob, his life was marked by rejection. Jacob lived a life of isolation from his family for the next 20 years. He humiliated his father. He was forced to leave home, left homeless, fleeing for his life, and estranged from his brother. He lived the next 20 years afraid of Esau. Plus, by leaving, he forfeited all the material prosperity that it would have been his given at the inheritance. At the end, he didn't get it. He left it. All that really for nothing. And let me tell you, the price of sin is high. And some of you can give testimony to that, could you not? The price of sin is high. Everyone in this family sought the blessings of God without ever bending the knee to God. We see it early in their marriage and in their family. They both inquire of the Lord, pray to the Lord, but after that, there's never a hint of that ever happening. Yet through it all, as we're going to see later, God's will is done, and the promise still lives. Even through this deception, God's will is accomplished. As Keith Crowell observes, God works the weakness of sinful men to accomplish His purpose. And that's what I want to encourage you today. I don't know where you are in your journey. I don't know where you are in your faith. Maybe you're struggling with these very same types of things. But let me tell you, be encouraged for God's providential hand is on you, no matter what your upbringing, no matter what your life has been like, no matter what decisions, good or bad, you have made, God's will is being done. Now, someone may say, well, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Well, I want to share with you a second doctrine. The second doctrine on display in these passages is the doctrine of election. What we see is that God chooses those things. There are times where God must choose to make His promises come true. Just as God chose Abraham, by the way, who was an idol worshiper. He was not a worshiper of God when He chose him. He chose him over all other peoples in the world. Then He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over his older brother Esau. God is revealing that His blessing is not a natural right but one he chooses. It's unconditional. He doesn't choose by the natural and human conditions. Genesis reveals this doctrine several times. Abel is chosen over Cain. Again, Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. As we shall see, Joseph is chosen over his ten brothers and Judah eventually over Reuben. God doesn't follow human expectations. God is moving through history and working through lives to produce the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the one that will save the world from its sin. God is not leaving anything to chance. All things work by the hand of God, even genealogies. 
He knows who, when, and where, and he will not be deterred. Would you take a moment and turn to Romans chapter 9 with me? We won't get deep into this passage for time doesn't allow us. But as we continue, we want to see very quickly God's God's election. Romans chapter 9. I want to read verses 9 through 16. Paul is writing about Israel. And in here he's talking about the children of promise. And in verse 9 he says, For this is what the promise said, speaking about the promise to Abraham, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, as she was told, the older will serve the younger. As is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul writes, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's election is based on his mercy, an unconditional choosing, predetermined not by the things that you and I do. And because of that, you and I could have encouragement and find joy and comfort in the fact that there's nothing that we could do to make ourselves right, but because God's love and mercy, He chooses us. In spite of all this dysfunction of this family, that that was demonstrated through their lying, their deceit, their conniving, their favoritism, their lack of grace and love towards each other, God chooses to bless this family, both materially and spiritually. He did not forsake them nor disown them, when they were unloving and unkind. He chooses to honor the promise given to Abraham through his grandson Jacob. And though they pay the price of their sin and the consequences of their sin, God's purposes continue. And here's where I would like to challenge and end us this morning. Is that you and I can take heart that even in spite of our own sin, God is faithful to his promises. As children of God, it doesn't matter how dysfunctional our family is or was, how many times we fail God or how often we show little faith, for God is faithful. Amen? His promise stands. The redemption of His people will be accomplished. And you and I can rest assured that God's plan of salvation will be completed. Now we are free from the penalty of the death You and I are free from the power of sin, and one day you and I will be totally free from the presence of that sin. Until that day, let us walk in faith, encouraged by God's providential hand working in our lives. Through the good and the bad, all of it works for God's good. Amen? Let's bow our head and close our eyes if you would. This is that part of the service that this is the major ending. This is very important. We're to pause, to consider, to pray, and respond. Father, what does this mean for me? Maybe there's times in which I need to look at my life and and say, God, I didn't see you then, but recognize that he was there. Understanding that God works all things for our good. And it's time to praise him, to thank him, and ask for strength in life. Would you do that this morning?
Father, let us respond to you and what you've called us. There are many people here with different applications. Some are struggling with decisions they made in their life. Some are struggling with the life that they lived. Lord, they see the, the ways that they have failed and they maybe are fearful of whether or not you still love them. Lord, I pray that you would embrace them this morning. Let your spirit bring them comfort. Father, your word has not left us destitute, but you have proclaimed those who are yours. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, we pray if there's any here that do not know you as Savior, Lord, that they would shout those words this morning, that they would turn and follow you. For those of us that have done that, Lord, encourage us in our walk. Let us be strong. And Father, when we are weak, I pray that you would continue to help us in our walk. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.